0: Welcome everyone, Dr. McCollum, helping you take control of your health. And today we're joined from a veteran in the field on the trenches of treating COVID-19 complications, including not only the disease, but complications from the jab, which is far more significant, serious, and deadly. So uh, while I'm talking, we're talking today to Dr. Michelle P- P- Pero, who is uh, Uh, went to Yale as an undergrad and then went to Mount Sinai medical school and did her postgraduate residency training in pediatrics at Bellevue. And for those of you are familiar with it, it's an inner city hospital provide unbelievable experience, pretty similar and comparable to cook County hospital in Chicago, where I actually spent a few months of my training uh, postgraduate. And, uh, you know, she was in the trenches and got to do her thing, but then she moved out and, and, um, is now in, uh, practicing in California, <laughs> kind of like the belly of the beast. <laughs> so, uh, and she's, you know, lives, she practices in a very highly um, vaccinated population. So she's she's got some interesting experiences to share with uh, something called viral shedding, which isn't really shedding, but spreading of the COVID spike proteins with the COVID jabs. So uh, she'll share that information with us later. So welcome. And thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Dr. Mercola. Pleasure to be here with you.
0: All right. So uh, where would you like to start? You want to tell us about your journey, how you got here and progression? And, and uh, actually, I had one burning question I wanted to ask you. Because you've been doing, I neglected to mention, you've been an integrative physician for many, many years. You know, So there's a big distinction because many of the, the leaders in the COVID uh, anti-assault would be like Malone and McCullough and uh, Steve Kirsch, but these are all relative newbies to the field of understanding natural health and medicine. But you, you and I aren't, we've been in this work field for a long, long time and uh, come to it from a different perspective, but I'm really curious because you're a pediatrician and you know, that, that is, it's an interesting specialty because they probably are the most seriously underpaid and overworked <laughs> and dedicated. And on the other hand, they've the ones that have been so significantly diluted about the value of vaccine therapy. And I'm assuming you had didn't buy the hook by the whole narrative propaganda hook, line, sinker before COVID-19 and maybe had some questions about the validity of conventional immunizations. But maybe I'm wrong. We didn't discuss this before. So I'm just curious where you, what your position is on the traditional immunizations or vaccines.
1: Yeah. Uh, thank you, Dr. So, so much to unpack there, but let me get started. Um, The addressing this question regarding the vaccine issue um, really coincided when I started seeing the tick up in autism. Um, Mm -hmm. That's when that all began. You're Uh, talking
0: about regular vaccines, not the COVID.
1: Yeah, regular vaccines. So um, I was, you um, you know, like all pediatricians, we are, you know, in the vax model, you know, thoroughly integrated into that. My own children vaccinated, you know, I never really questioned it. And or, you know, thought that there could be possibly anything wrong, because remember, thinking that we would intentionally harm children is a very difficult reach. As a matter of fact, the one of the most difficult diagnoses in pediatrics is Munchausen's by proxy. Mm -hmm. That's where a a parent usually or a a trusted individual intentionally hurts a child. So knowing that, that it's really hard to wrap around the fact that you would do intentional harm to a child Um, is out of the reach of many pediatricians. But in early 2000s, um, you know, I've been practicing 40 years. So within my span, I started seeing the significant uptick in autism. And so what that led me, when that correlated with my understanding of GMOs and pesticides. But however, when you start looking at one toxicant, You look at other toxicants and that's where I kind of got into the field of environmental toxicity, including our food, our air, our water, EMFs, you name it, the whole deal. And then I started going back.
0: Were you ever involved in AEM?
1: Not so much. Um, Now I am. Now I am. Back then I wasn't. Now I'm an advisor for NAEM and Mm -hmm. I've been and I'm working on um, a pediatric environmental health questionnaire and really. I wrote um, a bill of rights for environmental health for children, so I'm deep into this now, not just focusing on vaccines, but the global issue of of protecting children from environmental toxicity, and that's what I've been looking at now. So that's how that began, and it was linked to autism because I was so, autistic spectrum disorder, Mm -hmm. I was so shocked by the lack of alarm by colleagues, government officials, we were screaming from the rooftops like, hey there's nothing normal about a child with autistic spectrum disorder and we should be it it is now pandemic and we should be focusing hundred percent on that and we never did and we haven't to the way that i think would be adequate and that's how i started really digging deep and i am proud to say that in about has it been over 25 years ago i became a homeopath and, oh. and and then an integrated physician, the dreaded word in medicine, I have received thousands of eye rolls in my time from my colleagues. I, <laughs> I don't even talk about being a homeopath because mm, it's not taken well with a lot of my, my peers, but um, most of my treatment successes have been from homeopathy. So did I lay it out correctly? What does that sound yeah, like? Well? Yeah,
0: so I mean, the, the, the intention of the question was to discern whether or not you were opposed to most of you know most of the traditional childhood vaccines it sounds like you were uh, which is unusual extraordinarily unusual for a pediatrician but there are a few of you out there not many but a few
1: so, you know, and it was an evolution, and I think I was primed on this understanding with the GMO movement, and everything that helped me understand what's happening now, I've learned from GMOs, pesticides, and what happened there, there are so many parallels, and from treating kids with chronic Lyme, tick board infection, I hate both those words, neither of those words are accurate for what happens to kids, let's just call it Lyme disease, for say, ease of, um, you know, linguistics, mm-hmm. And once I understood that and who the person who taught me that was Dr. David Martin, when I heard Dr. Mm-hmm. David Martin lay out, you know, and what his perspective about what's happened the past two decades regarding where we're at now, I understood how to lay out the course that we've been on. And when I understand this trajectory, which has really been happening over decades, if you look back over from anywhere from Dr. Reif to Dr. Willie Bergdorfer to others, and we can do the history of medicine. When I understood the historical narrative of how we got here, I was able to piece it better together. Because for me, where we are now, is like GMO pesticides on steroids, Mm -hmm. but it's all happened before. So for those of us who've been awake, paying attention or or Lyme, we can talk about that, another bioweapon, how we got here with the health of our children. So that gave me tremendous historical perspective. I appreciate it and it gave me a, like a diving board to understand how to go forward.
0: Yes, indeed. It's, it's I think that may be one of the big, biggest benefits from this horrendous experience that we've all gone through the last two years is that it's really opened up a larger, the eyes of a large percentage of the population to recognize that there's some really serious, fundamental flaws with the entire vaccine program. It's not just the COVID jab, it's everything that precedes it. So uh, even some, one of the most fundamental ones, uh, Mary Holland with the Children Health Defense uh, is a co-author of a book that's coming out soon. And they, there's this actually encouraged them to take a section out of this new book uh, and call it the polio fraud, which you know most of us, most everyone believes that the vaccines for polio are what's responsible for eliminating polio from our culture which is a devastating neurological epidemic of paralysis and death in many cases so but it turns out it wasn't due at all to the virus it had nothing to do with the virus it was just a reaction to what you d- dove deeply into is an environmental toxin the the uh, specifically the pesticides like lead arsenic uh, uh, that was used uh interestingly, for like the first 40 years of the 20th century, and then they transitioned to DDT. And you know what I found fat the most fascinating thing in this book was that the last case of reported polio in the United States was from the back, from the uh, supposedly the national infection was 1972. And isn't it interesting? That's the year the United States banned DDT. Amazing.
1: Well, you know, um, I saw a video and for somehow YouTube must have missed it. They must have been asleep. Um, (laughs) But it was Dr. Maurice Hillebrand, I think his name is, and he worked for Merck. Oh, yeah,
0: Merck. Yeah, he was the head of Merck for a while. And
1: he developed polio vaccines. And he himself has and he says this himself. He said, you know, you know, he developed a, a wide, a wide array of vaccines. And he said, Oh yeah, it looks like the polio vaccines are contaminated where like 36 different viral pathogens because yeah. the way they developed the polio vaccines. They used these monkeys and they housed these monkeys right. in cages where they all got sick. And these viruses were transmitted the SV40 name it into the mm-hmm. vaccines because it's not a clean product. Right. So he knew hearing the, the the doctor who who developed the vaccine said he go, and when they said well, what's the problem with that he said cancer and i'm thinking wow okay and wow and you two didn't scrub that one jeez they um maybe i shouldn't be saying that now they're going to go back and take it off but this idea of vaccination contamination was exposed again in 2017 when they found nano contamination with heavy metals in 43 of 44 vaccines in a study out of italy pre covid and which, they, vaccine, which vaccine? Forty. The only vaccine out of forty-three out of forty-four vaccines tested, like Prevnar, inforex,
0: all so the people, all the regular ones,
1: all of them except Felogen, a cat vaccine. One out oh, of geez. one out of forty-four contained contamination from uh, metals, organic and inorganic metals like tungsten, chromium, lead, and these little nanoparticles, because of their size are inflammatory, great papers on that, and they cross the blood-brain barrier. And I am sure, without a doubt, that's what's linked to this neuroinflammatory process that we see with kids on the spectrum, rise in ADHD and other neurosensory, neurocognitive
0: issues. Yeah, it's just not the actual concentration. of it, but It's the method of administration. I know that was notoriously true for aluminum, which many experts believe is more serious of an issue than mercury was because it was injected at levels far in excess of what's supposed to be in the body. I mean, there's not supposed to be any aluminum. Aluminum's not beneficial for anything in your body. It should not be there, just like mercury.
1: Well, and you might be interested in learning there, and this was something that really surprised me because I've been against glyphosate, main ingredient Roundup, and. GMOs for a few decades now, I know more about glyphosate than my like childhood asthma, which is a little bit scary to me. But <laughs> a paper came out in 1993, which showed how glyphosate shuttles aluminum across the blood-brain barrier in six different ways. So glyphosate and aluminum are synergistic.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: so every, every child in America, globally, is bathed in glyphosate, literally, because we use so much, and, that, and now we shuttle it right into the blood, into the brain. So when I, we've assisted this process and now we're using nano aluminum in vaccines. I said, we, not me, they Mm -hmm. are using this nano aluminum in the vaccines, which it doesn't even say it, I believe on the inserts and I might be wrong there but I don't think it says nano aluminum which allows it to enter the brain more easily. I I just can't believe that's possible, but
0: that's what I've read.
1: I think it was on the uh, CDC website.
0: And those that are listening and watching may wonder why the heck would they put aluminum vaccine well, it's there for a real purpose because it enhances it's, it serves as an adjuvant and enhances the immune response. It gets a better antibody response, which is a, a whole other flawed strategy because all the vaccines as you are well aware and can then elaborate on this in a moment, you know, basically only stimulate the humoral antibody system. Uh, and the cellular immune system is ignored and, and, uh, because of that, that's one of the, the you have this uh, humoral uh, and cellular immunity uh, system imbalance, which can by itself that imbalance can lead to cancers in the future, not independent of any other contaminants in the vaccine, but essentially it's it's not as effective as the natural immune, immune response that we were we acquire from exposure to the natural infection. Just and it, it couldn't be more uh uh exquisitely illustrated in what's happened with the these the covid scenario and that those who've been vaccinated are actually far worse off than those who actually acquired natural immunity
1: Dr. McCall, you bring up a wonderful point there. I'm glad you mentioned it. And it really speaks to why children are immunologically different than adults and mm-hmm. children are not many adults because they have that other arm of the immune system, the innate immune system. You mentioned the adaptive, the antibody res- responsive system. And children have a very robust innate immune system, and they have a thymus, which involutes with time as adults, ours are long gone. And because of this innate immune system and increase in cells, they're able to fight COVID. And that's why children do so well with this virus because of their robust innate immunity, which is totally, as you state accurately, bypass when you give somebody a vaccination. But Dr. Fauci himself said in 2004, natural immunity is better than vaccine-induced immunity. It's the, it's out there. You can,
0: it's, it's widespread. I've uh, seen that video many times. Have I? Yeah, uh, you know, he, he does say the truth occasionally, but uh, you know, it really depends on what his specific circumstances are, but that's a whole other issue. So I think we can, with that preface, we can probably dive into some of your experience with this m- most recent pandemic. Uh, you're still seeing patients. You're in the trenches. And you've got a lot of exposure to what's happened. So why, why don't you take us uh, uh, on a little journey and tell us, share your experiences, you know, and we go back to the beginning of the epidemic.
1: Sure. Um, so and in full disclosure, you know, 40 years in the field, I was really trying to get to pastures, you know, and do more nonprofit <laughs> work. I wrote one book. I'm working on a second, uh, creating nonprofits, bigger vision, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of got yanked. I always, I'm only seeing patients once a week and which for a clinician, I am a clinician. I'm a proud clinician. That's not a lot, but, and I, you know, was asked by individuals, Michelle, can you help us create a protocol for, um, before children get this COVID vaccine and in case there are issues afterwards. And I said, no way, I'm not <laughs> because we shouldn't be administering them. Because of the here in Marin County, as you mentioned, um, highly vaccinated, I've I read stats where 95% vaccinated, very high rates of vaccination. Oh, my gosh,
0: over,
1: 95% over 12 is very high. I don't have the exact number, but it's very high Um, um t- children over 12. Um, so, OK, um, so I reluctantly acquiesced why because I started seeing injuries right away Mm -hmm. and so in this very brief time that I'm working clinically I was amazed how many kids I was seeing who injured and that should be surprising in a very in an area that is very affluent um, Mm -hmm. and kids have means Um, we're not in an inner city here in the area I live in and the the kids that we care for Um, the types of reactions I started seeing were first initially neurologic they're neurologic-based injuries. And those were, some of them in the beginning were simple, were simpler, but concerning like tinnitus, which is ringing the ear. And that could be horrific for a kid. I had a musician, go to Juilliard. He had this severe acute onset, like um, after the first of Pfizer, worse after the second of this massive tinnitus, not just a little buzz. Um, vertigo, 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 vertigo. I have colleagues who saw Guillain-Barré ascending paralysis. I did not see any uh, Guillain-Barré, but I saw cardiac stuff, uh, myocarditis for sure. And then just abnormal heart rate responses like tachycardia, increased heart rate, might've been not secondary to primary cardiac trauma, but increased catecholamines, that increased heart rate. Um, I saw POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia, something very common in Lyme disease with very difficult to treat. And another couple of weird things I saw were this one child with rhabdomyolysis, where he had massive breakdown of his muscle tissue, which is a very rare event in childhood. Rhabdomyolysis, it's uncommon. And so I was seeing this massive array. And then I started seeing um, people develop symptoms who were unvaccinated. And so including myself. I, I got mm-hmm. spiked. That's what I call it, getting spiked. <laughs> um, it wasn't my drink um, and uh, what it took for me to clear my own spikitis um, or spikopathy. Um, so I, I saw a little bit of a, about that. And with the place I saw that in others and kids were teenage girls with menstrual bleeding, mm-hmm. um, heavy bleeding, prolonged bleeding, um, and other menstrual irregularities, mostly with increased bleeding. Um, so that's what I started to see and colleagues checking in with me. Hey, Michelle, can you help us with? And then now that now that I'm thinking about it, there was a smattering of rashes, urticaria, hives. And one kid, erythema multiforme, um, another kind of rash, maybe one kid with a blistering rash. So a bizarre host of rashes. So um, this is the kind of stuff we started seeing. And this happened began happening last June. After ASEP, the American Academy, American Committee of Immunization Practice, I believe, said, yep, 12 year olds, you know, can be vaccinated. Dr. Stephanie Seneff wrote a piece uh, for my organization, GMO Science, about that, you know, label pedicide. Um, Like, what are we doing? Stop, stop, stop. Myocarditis, rare in children, now not rare. It kept rolling out. We have to, that's another topic we can discuss is why despite massive injury. We continue to roll out this vaccine. We can go to the dark place. But, um, and once again, we as clinicians, they bring out a technology, gene edited therapies, either in our food or we inject them, a host of health trauma results. And now we have to sort it out how we fix it with tools, not in the traditional toolbox. That's what we're faced with.
0: Yes, indeed. So I'm curious some of the strategies you use specifically to address these. Uh, And also curious about the rhabdomyolysis. How old was the patient that you had when
1: He was like, I think it was a 16-year-old boy, biker. And he was saying, oh, I'm a mountain biker. And this likely happened from, you know, mountain biking. No, kids don't get rhabdo from mountain biking. (laughs) No. <laughs> he wasn't, he, he was didn't have this massive insult, massive muscular trauma. I think in 40 years, and I'm a pediatric emergency physician, so mm-hmm. Metropolitan Hospital, Oakland Children's, et cetera, et cetera. I think I've seen one case of rhabdo in 40 years of rhabdomyolysis in 40 years of practice. Um, it was pretty shocking.
0: So it was interesting for me because there was a local patient. A local state of Florida was on the other coast, but a young woman who's 21 years old was going to have her both of her legs amputated. And I thought for sure it was due to clots. So I wound up getting a hold of her dad and try to be some assistance to him. And it turns out it was rhabdo. So, you know, it's interesting. I think we use this as an illustrative example because as, as I understand it, it's an autoimmune disease and it's really, really tough to turn around. So I'm wondering how you approach it.
1: Yeah, that can, well, Interestingly, the family waited a while before they came in with this. I'm not really sure why. Um, so we kind of saw him a couple of weeks after, and even then, his uh, markers were off the charts for rabdo. Um, his creatine kinase, he um, was like in the three thousands. It was um, so. Um, what I did was I offered um, spike binding protein. The family refused that. They don't. They did not want spike.
0: Uh, spike. spike. Binding protein. I have never heard of that. What is that?
1: So um, using spike binders like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine.
0: Oh, okay. You're calling it a protein, but it's a spike binding.
1: It's a, it's a spike. So it's um, this, right, to bind the spike. So it yeah, doesn't. It's not really
0: a protein. It's a supplement it. of sorts or a therapy, spike binding therapy, SBT.
1: The spike binding protein therapy. Well, spike binding therapy, or I, or I call it with the families de-spiking. Okay. So, you know, if we, if you're making spike, you know, more spike, bind spike. Um, even though kids don't have a lot of H2 receptors, those spikes are everywhere. And they're they're, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're they're you know, in mice we show they've crossed the blood brain barrier, they're they're disseminated, and then they tend to focus in your area of weakness. You know, that's where they seem to like, well, then they go in fat-loving tissues, they go in the ovaries, they go seem to go everywhere. They're everywhere. So Binding the spike—that's um, one. That's one aspect. And there are different things you can do, both pharmaceutical and non-pharmaceutical. Um, decreasing inflammation, especially IL-6. You want to use a lot of immunomodulating immunomodulators, um, and a lot of supplements can do that. Well, well,
0: well, you're so rather than just name the categories of strategies, you can probably identify the specific interventions because there's yes. not that many. So we can no, just no, solve no. all of them together.
1: So my favorite is ivermectin for the spike. Um, and, uh, you know, I was using kids 12 milligrams initially once a day. I went to up to 12 milligrams twice a day. With yeah, uh, like
0: Omicron, did you increase the dose?
1: Um, a two, I went up for Omicron uh, to, depends on the size of the kid, to 12 milligrams twice a day. And for bigger kids, 18 milligrams twice a day. Um, didn't I didn't see any toxicity with ivermectin. I, it's, I've used ivermectin before with kids and parasites and stuff, never had any problem with ivermectin. Um, I have not used hydroxychloroquine, but now for Omicron, I would use more hydroxychloroquine, 200 twice a day is what I would use. I use a lot of uh, quercetin and zinc um, together. I like quercetin and zinc, quercetin about 500 twice a day. I'm talking about a teenage kid because mm-hmm. as you know, in a younger kid, you mm-hmm. would mod- change it. Zinc, anywhere from 25 to 50 milligrams a day. In a teenage boy who he was like an adult weight, 130 pounds and then so that's how if you think about the now,
0: what veg- we, now why don't you, you you're one of these student physicians who understands the dangers of excessive zinc so 50 milligrams is a pretty high dose and i know you i'm absolutely certain you're co- aware of the connection with zinc and copper so why don't you elaborate on that
1: yeah so i only do the high dose for a few days three days okay, and then good. I a lot of people
0: don't get that they were 50 milligrams think oh, i should be on 50 milligrams the rest of my life
1: no no three days I do 50 and then I drop down to 25 and then once they're better, take them off the zinc. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, boys need more zinc, um, than girls for girls. I would not give higher than 25, a teenage boy in puberty. I would give 50, but then drop it back because you're absolutely right. The zinc is in, in balance with copper and you don't want to drive copper down right. um, because of that balance and you need copper for so many liver enzyme. Um, it's a metalloenzyme. enzyme. you got to keep that copper ratio. Balance. It's true. I don't like over supplementing with anything. I'm really careful, you know, with green pharmacy. You know, you have to give therapeutic doses, but then you have to cut it back Mm once you reach the desired effect. So that's why the the best thing pediatricians can do, or integrative physicians, I should say, because I don't think a lot of pediatricians are doing (laughs) it.
0: We're talking a tiny fraction of 1%. That's for sure.
1: You know, the phone follow-up, please. You know, I follow up all the patients with a phone call, always. And that was one of the the cornerstones of my own practice. And I ran an integrative virgin care here in my little town is I always call the patient back, how is it going, and change the prescription, Um, you know, especially true in homeopathy. So that is sort of every clinician needs to call people back and you can make adjustments on the phone or Zoom easy to do. So when I look at injury from vaccine, we have to consider that the vaccine has four components, five, five components to deal with. You have to deal with the spike aspect. You have to deal with the peg aspect. You have to deal with the nanolipid, highly inflammatory aspect. You have to deal with the graphene oxide or what I call special sauce. You don't know what other little special things. And then you have to offset nanotoxicity. Mm-hmm. So when I treat, I'm looking at these five components to understand because they all can be modulated in different ways. So that's why we have to use um, an entire menu of things when treating um, a vaccine reaction but from COVID vaccines specifically.
0: Interesting. So uh, I definitely wanna go into more of the approaches and some of the strategies you're using, but I'm particularly curious I didn't realize you were in Marin County. And if I'm not mistaken, Marin County was largely a, highly opposed to California's uh, legislation that was passed a few years back at removing the philosophical exemption. I mean, California speak be great. You should know, used say, I don't want it and you didn't have to get a vaccine. But they, this, this Marin County, for those who are not aware, but it's, it's basically you know, the Silicon Valley and it's highly educated, very affluent, families and, and mothers who were strongly opposed. It was the vast majority, I believe. And they were characterized in the mainstream media as just wacky, didn't understand what was going on. And yet they were some of the smartest ones out there. So I'm wondering if you confirm, but my memory is correct on that. And I'm just curious as to how this stalwart group of families and mothers, who are opposed to the removal of philosophical exemption transition into adopting and accepting this COVID vaccine at a 95% rate is just extraordinary.
1: So, yeah, a couple of things. Um, what well, it's it's a big I'll try to make this brief because we could be here for a few hours, Dr. McCullough. Um, I call it getting panned. Um,
0: oh, we, Senator Panned.
1: <laughs> we got panned. Uh, pediatrician, you know, pediatrician gone senator. Um, I don't think he actually ever sees a child or maybe he maybe he has one. I don't know. So, um, okay, what happened to those moms? You're right. There was a very large vocal group of of mostly women, but not all. And I and I must say still in healthcare with children, they are women we're seeing. Um, And I even when I wrote my book, I don't think we saw one dad in the entire practice. Dads, wake up dads. But anyway, yes, this this was driven largely by women um, and, um, they, and many of them came from Marin. and you're right, painted as this hysterical group of people, hysteria, you know, uterus. Um, but these women are some of the smartest women, ex CEOs of companies, you know, executives, lawyers, uh, you know, my heavy hitting smart gals. Um, we lost with the pan thing, um, when, you know, removing religious exemptions, um, and now we're facing a similar thing. I think, as I've watched Dr. Desmet over and over, he's one of my go-to Dr. Desmet from, from Belgium about the uh, mass hypnosis, mass formation. I, I don't like the word psychosis in there because of what psychosis, you yeah, know. Neither does he. Then it, you know, denotes. But I think some of the, you know, what it says and what him, he says is some really educated uh, folks, um, high professional careers have bought into protected children concept that we have to protect our kids from this they also bought into protecting others that children are somehow little vectors and we have to protect others adults elderly grandma our own public health physician here when promoting the vaccine on a forum that I would watch last week said yes and you will protect grandma if you vaccinate children which is immoral to vaccinate a child when their risk is way greater than their benefit. That's just immoral, unethical, unconscionable, by the way. Um, I just can't even wrap around that. Uh, So I struggled with that stuff. But when you look at who supports Senator Pan, you know, he got $1.5 million. He's coming hard with legislation right now to force every kid in California to get vaccinations. But the one that's up on Thursday here in our state is that 12 and up, Will be able to get permission for their own to receive a vaccine, removing the parent-child relationship. That's being looked at in Sacramento this Thursday. And when I looked at who donated money to San Dr. Pan, one of them was the teachers' union. And I said, well, that's interesting. And I do believe, and this is an and this is my belief now, not this my own speculation, that teachers want to protect themselves from children from getting COVID, and so they're vaccinating kids to protect themselves. Now, I would not find that to be hard stretch to believe here, Marin. You know, I call it Mirin sometimes, that we need to protect. <laughs> we have to protect the adults, this affluent Silicon Valley North adults, from these little, you know, vectors running around. Because that can only be one of the reasons why the parents have bought into it. The other reason why parents have told me why they went for it, even though they opposed it, is their kids could not be entered into society. They were banned from summer camps and theater club and soccer, and they were literally ostracized and outcast, and they wanted their kids to be in community, and that's why a lot acquiesced. Thirdly, a lot of moms and dads are in fierce divorce battles. I've gotten so many consults, like we're in in divorce, my husband and I are fighting, moms and dads have opposing views on the COVID vaccine, and we're going to court. Can you help?
0: Who's usually, uh, is it the mother that's typically anti-vax as a yes. dad's pro? I would assume.
1: That assumption is correct. And that's what I've seen. I haven't seen it the other way yet. Women
0: are so much smarter. Damn. I you wasn't
1: going to say that. I wasn't going to say that. To my, but um, if you mentioned that, um, I, I'd say, please listen to the ladies. Um, yeah, when, yeah. When, moms, when moms say there's something wrong with my kid, guess what? there's something wrong. And it's my job to figure it
0: out. That's all there is to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think it's a special activation of some segments of their brain that that they get as being a mother and, you know, such a responsibility to to bring consciousness into this world and a healthy child. I mean, it's just amazing, enormous responsibility that's totally undervalued in our society. Uh, But, you know, as a result of that, they have this intuitive wisdom that just needs to be listened to.
1: And not only do we have intuitive wisdom, but another thing is that we have mixing of cells. You know, once you give birth, you carry those cells around with you forever. So if you have little pieces of Johnny and Susie hanging, (laughs) and sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night, I have children. I'll go, whoa, there's something wrong with one of my kids. And I'm like on the phone, you know, um, and there's something wrong with one of my kids, even though they're 3000 miles away. So. Yes, women have a lot of intuitive knowledge. And, you know, forcing, there is a bigger agenda here, because cl- clearly these vaccines are dangerous for kids. There's no doubt. I mean, the data is irrefutable. And yet we've proceeded. So we're dealing with other agendas here and now. And um, I wrote a piece for Children's Health Defense about pediatricians rise up. That's not happening. I think parents need to rise up and protect their children because this is not going away. And if anything, not going away, ramping up.
0: Yeah, for sure. So just uh, supporting and further confirming the connection with the mother's uh, parts in the child. I mean, I'm sure most people understand that the mitochondria, which are literally there's trillions in our body, maybe quadrillions, but all the DNA in our mitochondria, 100% of it comes from the mother. None of it comes from the dad. So uh, there's another strong connection to the. And, to
1: the and, you know, the other thing, which I've always found fascinating, <clears throat> one of the things I'm into heavily as a microbiome, uh, you know, microbiome, microbiome. Mm-hmm. So mito, mitos are probably transformed bacteria, and they're living with us. And sure. baby inherits the microbiome from mom. And if I didn't know better, I would say that those microbes inherited from mom are still chatting up with mom's microbes because microbes core and sense, right? That's how they chat with each other. So initially, uh-huh. children and moms share a very similar, unique pattern because we're mostly microbial, you know, 10 to one, perhaps fewer in some even
0: higher, maybe even higher,
1: yeah, maybe with
0: respect to the amount of DNA in their body.
1: It's most correct. Different. And these microbes communicate and you have microbial fingerprints everywhere, not just your intestinal microbial fingerprint, but your skin, your eyes, you know, your, your everyone, in your body's a unique microbiome. So they're chatting up with mom all the time. And so this, this communication may be way more sophisticated, um, than we even give credit towards think These are the kind of things I'm thinking about when, um, <laughs> out taking care of the chickens. Um, we have, chickens? Have chickens? We, have, we have four chickens yes oh COVID man. chickens. yes
0: Well, i'll have to share with you my magic sauce for feeding your chickens because almost every person who raises chickens is feeding commercial food which is laced absolutely laced with something almost as bad as glyphosate it's excessive vegetable or seed oils or linoleic acid so
1: uh i get mine from an organic farmer howard leaguer i get he ships it to me from his organic farm and that's what i feed okay. my girls
0: yeah. But even the organic stuff there's still, you know, almost all of them use seed oils as the form of fat because it's so cheap. So, or so organic seed oils. <laughs> but anyway, it's uh, another issue. I don't want to, I want to go to, we'll talk we, about.
1: We, right, we, right, we can get into chicken feeding. Um, I also put probiotics in my chicken water. Oh
0: so. yeah. Yeah. Of course. And minerals. Of
1: course, and, of course you do. Why not. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, I've got 17 chickens, so it becomes an issue for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> The I want to go into your protocols that you've established and noticed improvement in caring for your patients, because I think that's useful. We don't get a chance to talk to as many people on the clinicians, especially those treating, you know, the, in these circumstances with a, with a multi-decade history of familiarity with integrative medicine, because most of the people that have gotten into this are, are latecomers, as I mentioned earlier. So I'm um, I, I've heard you on Dr. McCullough's po- podcast, and I know you're a big fan of some of the fibro- fibrinolytic enzymes like lumbrokinase So why don't you talk about the needs for those and, uh, and maybe some of the other ones? Because you know the, the fact that these impair or activate the clotting system is a serious issue and maybe one of the most significant, at least acute pathologies that they have to In- contend done with.
1: You know, I really um, embrace the lumbrokinase. Um, I've been using lumbrokinase for years with Lyme kids, Lyme treatment, as um, not not for its clotting mechanism, but for break, for breaking up biofilm. Mm, okay. um So I use it um for a long time successfully as a biofilm breaker. It's one of the functions of lumbrokinase. For those who don't know, it, it is derived from earthworms. People don't actually eat the earthworm; they're taking in a capsule. Somebody asked me that. No, you don't have to eat the earthworms. Although, and but, however, lumbrokinase has been around in Chinese medicine, I believe, for 5,000 years. So, mm. not not exactly a new therapy. But we know that the, um, the clotting mechanisms are activated, whether it's the platelet phenomenon, we know that it occurs. There is, a, um, there is a thrombotic and antithrombotic phenomenon that occur. And I mentioned this kid I treated with even the ringing in his ear, the tinnitus, mm-hmm. whether it was actually microemboli that triggered this. And that's what I suspected. So I started, I've been using lumbrokinase. I prefer lumbrokinase to natokinase. Myself, which is made from soybean, because I don't know if the soybeans are GMO, because um, it has. You
0: know, there's another reason, for at least with respect to this fibrinolytic, fibrinolytic activity, lumbrokinase is 300 times more potent than nattokinase. No, actually, I'm sorry, it's only 30 times. It's 300 times more potent than seropeptidase.
1: Seropeptidase. seropetides. So I've used seropetides early days of Lyme treatment as a biofilm buster, but so I started bringing in lumbrokinase. I've also used lumbrokinase. Where I got most experience with it years ago was in treating people um, with cavitations, oral cavitations. And that's how I started because when people have a lot of oral cavitations, they're not perfusing their jaw because of the anatomy. And when I gave them lumbrokinase, they had increased perfusion mm. of areas of stagnation. How did
0: you doc- I, How'd you document that?
1: Um, a clinical improvement.
0: Oh, for improvement. Okay, so and, you just scan to show
1: it. Well, you can, but you have to do these digital CTs, yeah, which yeah. I don't like because then you're, you know, even though it's a small dose of radiation, I try to avoid frequent these digital scans. But also, you can look at, let's say, this is how I started with the with patients with um the cavitations. Their D dimers are up. Mm. And so you have a couple of things that aren't looked at in traditional mainstream medicine are ones people coagulation status prior, like do they have genetic SNPs, so they have a factor V Leiden or prothrombin 2A or other genetic SNPs that predispose them to hypercoagulation, Mm. then you look for areas that are under hyper, under underperfused, like the jaw, for example. And we know that anaerobics or hypoxygenation is part of the pathologic process. So when I started looking back historically how I use Lumbro, I said, and then when I saw the massive clotting issues coming out from the vaccine, and coupled with the fact that in June, last June, they released a new drug for strokes in children. And I'm thinking, oh, they're preparing for the tsunami of clotting issues that are about, are about to befall children. Strokes are not normal in children. Please do not normalize strokes, heart disease. That's
0: what, that's what they're seeking to do. I
1: And I saw that paper and I I had like a cold sweat, Dr. Mercola. So that so I've had experience with lumbrokinase and other disorders. I, I don't want to over um, exaggerate how much I've used it. I've only used it a few times in some kids, but I got spiked. I developed vertigo from a friend recently vaccinated, and I myself took it with great success. I treated myself for a spike proteinitis. Um, so I do Lumbro, and I've had great success with that um, across the board.
0: Yeah, just a, one point for those who are interested, it's a, to get the maximum benefit, you have to take it on an empty stomach. Otherwise, it's going to digest the protein in your food, which is not the intention. So it's an hour before or two hours after a meal.
1: Thank you for that point. You won't use it as an enzyme, right? To break down. If you want to use it as a digestive enzyme, well, I guess you could do that. It's an expensive
0: right? digestive enzyme.
1: It's expensive therapy, but yes, away, all enzyme therapy, if you're looking to for the clotting aspect, be yeah. away from meals. Yeah,
0: yeah, a lot of, i mean you and i are both familiar with it but a lot of people watching this may not be so <laughs> I, hate see, I hate to see them do the right thing and then not implement it properly because the devil's in the details right
1: well there are supplements and then there's timing of supplements
0: mm-hmm.
1: because not all supplements you, you have to know i i just posted this article on facebook you know uh well you know went to time supplements um and i think it was from the epic times that I got that article. I said, this is great because it really was a nice little review on the timing. It's not just what you take, it's when you take it. And with what you take it, like ivermectin is more effective taking with a fatty meal. Mm-hmm. So it improves the absorption of ivermectin. So I I'll tell parents how to do that. You know, take it with a, a meal or away from food. You're absolutely correct.
0: So on the, Lumbrokindness. were there other strategies used for your spikeitis exposure to the spike protein from a friend who was, who was jabbed Um, uh, and how long did it take you to recover?
1: So I speak my own personal experience because I, I developed immediate vertigo, like almost immediately after being a friend who had just gotten a booster and I didn't know it. Um, I would have avoided her like the plague. If I had known, I didn't know. And we were together and I said, I got hit. Like I said, "Uh Oh, I knew this was nothing normal. I could tell immediately. So I started myself on ivermectin. I took um, pine needle tea leaf, and I can talk about that. I did a lot of curcumin. Well, I treated all those different aspects. The NAC, I took the uh, zinc quercetin. I took the lumbrokinase, and I think uh, lots of NAC. And I think I took some zeolite also, and I could talk about that. And then I do other things. I'm very focused on food is medicine garlic and ginger, lots of turmeric, curcumin. I do tons of curcumin, um, with black pepper and fat, of course. And I took homeopathics. Yeah. So I did a very complicated regime myself because why? Because I knew what happened to me. Um, you know, I'm an experienced clinician and also I didn't trust the etiology of the derivation of this virus and this spike being a bioweapon and having experienced treating Lyme, which is a bioweapon. So having seen the um, results of bioweapon medicine, when they become, you know, pathogenic vectors, you know, we, what we've been um, having, I haven't had experience with that. I really didn't want this to settle in my body.
0: Okay, yeah. so uh, two, two points on that. I'm wondering, it sounds like you're not integrating nebulized hydrogen peroxide therapy into the protocol.
1: Well, yeah, actually, oh, I you,
0: am. Oh, you just didn't mention it, okay.
1: <laughs> okay, well, um so I read Dr. Levy's book, um, Dr. Levy's great, and Thomas levy on the um, uh, his book says it on how to do. I'm a big fan of uh, nebulized hydrogen peroxide, the three percent solution. I dilute it one to one with saline and get you know, parents get these old handheld mesh nebulizers. I think they're about twenty five bucks. You can buy them. and I have them do that as well. But, you know, during COVID, I had parents doing all kinds of rinses with peroxide and iodine or and all kinds of things to eliminate the virus because it enters the oropharynx, right? So it's right here. It's entering. So elimination, it's what I did for strep throat. So there's about five different cocktails you can use for elimination of virus. But hydroperoxide is a favorite. And if parents could get nebulized glutathione, I've done that also. Um, I've done that mostly in adults with nebulized glutathione. And I don't give kids a lot of glutathione because it tastes terrible. Um, and it doesn't last very long. So I, I use a lot of NAC and I found NAC, I give NAC out like water now. And we know that it's powerful because the FDA tried to uh take it off our prescribing list. So <laughs> that's right. Look to who they censor and what they censor.
0: That's that's for sure. So, are there any particular homeopathics? You know, as a home, practicing homeopath, and that's your area of expertise. So, have you found any uh, remedies that seem to work particularly well?
1: Well, it's harder with homeopathy because homeopathy is so individualized. But having mm-hmm. said that, um, yes, it gets complicated because you need to work with a um, a prescriber of this kind of medicine. I use my go-to are German biologic medicine. It's called homotoxicology mm-hmm. or bioregulatory medicine. And um, there they have this great liver lymph kidney detox that I bring in while I'm doing it. And I use these detox, especially for lymph because you want to move lymphatics. Um, and so I use these detoxes. You can use these homeopathics derived from various... COVID, both vaccine and organisms, but I'm I'm kind of low to go into it because you really need to be working with the homeopath sure. to discuss it. It's I wouldn't recommend that people do it on their own without the guidance of an experienced homeopath, but there are lots of remedies and there are lots of remedies for the symptoms of COVID, by the way, lots of homeopathic uh, remedies for um, the aches, the fevers, uh, the any breathing issues. This is what we do in homeopathy. So we have Big toolbox.
0: Right. So I'm um, curious. You had mentioned the uh, strategies that you use as a bioweapon strategy because you had previous experience with bioweapons aside from COVID and, then, and that was referring to the line So I'm wondering if you could expand on that. And I'm assuming it's related to the, uh, I guess, the story that or the, the, the history of line being linked back to Plum Island.
1: Yeah, you know, um, why shouldn't we be able to treat Lyme, right? It, it's a, a chronic infection. It's, you know, it's a, you know, spirochete, syphilitic like organism. And then, you know, and I, and I found that most, you know, the kids I treated with Lyme and parents, I treated adults too. Half of my practice at the time was adults when I did more Lyme treatment than I do now. Um, they never really cleared, not 100%, but that's the long story. But maybe 80, 100, 80 90%, never 100%. And also parts of their immune system got knocked out. Which I find that there are similarities with COVID, you know, that there is a distinct part. They became, they look a lot like HIV patients, many of the patients with chronic tick borne infection. And when I went back and reread a, a few books about Lyme, um, one was Bitten by Chris Newby,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and one was called Lab 257 and about what happened in plum island and the experimentation it's not a surprise to me we've been we've been it's not it's not a it's judy mikovitz talks about this we've been doing bioweapon experiments what eight decades you know at, at least maybe more um so this idea we do, we weaponized ticks um and that's why they're so hard to treat and um and when we understand that i believe that dr bergdorfer as per the work of dr um chris newby she's a scientific journalist um and this is where i learned about it that he had disclosed that there were some organisms that may have been in those ticks that he didn't reveal um a rickettsia-like organism that maybe he perhaps created so i think that may be in part and parcel why one of the reasons why tick tick-borne infections are so hard to treat because we don't know what we're dealing with and they're designed to kind of make you immuno-incompetent and so we have to get back to creating a robust immune system to manage the organisms, but not, we're not only treating the organism, we're treating the terrain. It's like Pasteur versus Beauchamp. It's, you know, organism versus terrain. I believe it's both. So we have to heal the terrain, treat the organism and remove the intoxicants that especially the immunotoxicants that interfere with um, immunologic health. And so that's what I focus on.
0: So I, I was happy to hear of your, fondness for Dr. Levy's uh, book and oxidative therapies. I'm wondering if you've used other oxidative therapies for the treatment of Lyme, specifically ozone.
1: Um, I've used ozone. Absolutely. Um, I Not so much in kids as much because, um, um, oh, that's not true. A couple of kids. I've used an adult using um, take-home tanks. I've used HBOT. Um, which is hyperbaric oxygen, mm-hmm. both in Lyme and as a therapy for autism, very effective. Mm-hmm. So these types of therapies look, you know, people with chronic leg ulcers and chronic infections do well with HBOT. Why wouldn't we think that chronic Lyme or other, you know, disorders would do well with hyperoxygenation therapy and, other, and ozone therapy? So um, yes, I think it works. I have an ozone machine upstairs myself somewhere. Um, yeah, I'm not
0: surprised. You seems um, like you've got all the novel therapies. It's great. Oh,
1: I, you know, I'm sitting on my infrared pad right now. I have a... I was going to talk about that next. you <laughs> read right my mind. Yeah, so, I'm a believer. I'm a, I, I, I practice what I preach, Dr. Mercola.
0: Yeah, well, well, you don't have to, but it, it helps. It makes you more believable, too. <laughs> you know, it's just... And, and why not? I mean, it's just crazy. We know these approaches work, and... You know, we live in very fragile envelopes. You know, it doesn't take much to take us out. So it seems crazy not to implement everything you know to optimize your health. So, but one of the things I'm interested, really with, especially recently, is uh, uh, infrared. Primarily because, and you may not be aware of this, most clinicians are not, because it's relatively new findings. Uh, Russell Ryder, who's a huge investigator for melatonin for like, as long as you've been practicing pediatrics or more, um, has brought this to light that the most of the melatonin produced in your body is in your mitochondria. 95% of it. it's not in your pineal lens, your mitochondria. And typically as a result of exposure of your skin to infrared radiation. So why is it so important? Well, you talked about using glutathione, uh, nebulized to, to some patients, but mitoc- melatonin actually one of the things it does is it increases glutathione levels. I mean, it, it itself is a directly highly effective neutralizing uh, antioxidant, but it, but it catalyzes the production of glutathione. So I'm wondering, and you know, and so ultimately it goes best, one of the most, the, certainly the least expensive way for infrared is sun exposure. And, you know, you live in Northern California, so most of the year you could do that. And, you know, what I've learned is that Yes, vitamin D is helpful. I've been studying that for decades and, and promoting it. But what I've come to realize is that swallowing it is not really a good strategy. I mean, if you don't have any other choice, you know, it's probably the best of, you know, it's the best option, but you really need to get it from the sun because when, when you get it from the sun, you're not only getting vitamin D, but you're getting the infrared and you're upregulating all the magic benefits of melatonin in your mitochondria, which is extraordinary and it's free. It doesn't cost you a penny. <laughs>
1: I'm a, i am agree. You know, it's like taking a supplement over eating the food. I mean, <laughs> it's not the same. I also recommend sun exposure, um, for kids, you know, to stop the sunblock or, you know, when, when kids start to burn, Let, let's, can we employ a modicum of common sense? Yes. Vitamin D exposure, hap- there's more than just taking a vitamin D2, uh, uh, you know, supplement, um, and also you need to make sure you take the right vitamin D and make sure you take it with K2 because you'll increase your calcium. It's not all benign, but there was a little trick I've learned because I take care of children. So mm. they also make vitamin D oil. Mm. Right? Correct. And so of course it's with the K2. So I don't want to create issues with calcium. I put it on the child's skin mm. because remember your skin is a great absorptive surface. So when I want to avoid um, going through first pass digestion, I'll apply things in children topically,
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially homeopathy works great topically. And yeah. also, um, a lot of the liposomals work great topically, especially if you put it on an oil base on the child's skin.
0: Yeah. It's a good strategy. I mean, that's the way we get vitamin D anyway. Typically it's through the skin. We typically yeah. with UVB activating, 7 uh, 70 cholesterol to convert it to vitamin D, but yeah, it's a good strategy. So, um, glad you're a fan of that. And it's, you know, it's just, it seems that's one of the primary reasons, factors that contribute to our sort of epidemic of chronic illness. And you mentioned the caution about sunburn, but it seems to me, there's pretty strong evidence that most of the sunburn, yes, it's it's activated by excessive sun exposure, but if you had the excessive sun exposure and you didn't have a diet high in seed oils, high linoleic acid, maybe 20% of the fat in your body, linoleic acid, then you wouldn't have anything to oxidize in your skin to cause the burn or the cancer. Mm -hmm. So you're really a very low, virtually zero seed oil diet and low linoleic acid in general is probably one of the best ways to prevent sunburn and, and prevent chronic degenerative diseases, including heart disease and cancer.
1: And upping your ascorbic acid also, um, you know, not enough ascorbic acid in kids' diets. Um, I recommend that too to offset burning um, as well. Yeah, but
0: you got you got to be careful with ascorbic acid as a supplement it's because it's obviously it's a synthetic chemical. And, you know, it's. I think it has great value in treating acutely, especially in things like COVID, you know, and septic shock. I mean, geez, it could save so many people's lives. But chronically, I think you're much better off taking whole food vitamin C because uh it's it's not going to de- the primary reason is it's not going to deplete copper whereas ascorbic acid could it's just like a, it it's it's more like a drug than it is a, a vitamin i think you really need to get it and the best my favorite i've got it you i don't know you could probably grow them in california it's this tree called barbados tree which is acerola cherries mm-hmm. and today as i spoke we just harvested our first gallon of acerola cherries which is like oh it, it's like for eight months of the year we get them and i just got my I had a half a gallon this morning. I probably got like over 10 grams of vitamin C.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, this goes back to this food is medicine concept. Okay. So I know we're kind of all over the place here, but- No, no,
0: it's important. That's what it is. I mean, this is a whole-
1: This is, and you know, I I would have to do a plug here, a shameless plug for a new nonprofit that I'm forming with a group of folks, really smart folks called Regeneration Health International. Mm -hmm. We're part of sister organization of Regeneration International.
0: A veteran. I think that's is, is that what Ronnie Cummins? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, we help we help form that.
1: <laughs> that is, Um. that is a brilliant organization focused on regenerative agriculture. But we're yeah. creating the health aspect of it focused on food as medicine. And Andre Liu will be contributing and Stephanie Seneff will be contributing and I'll be doing a lot of it as well. And now we're trying to give people, eaters, parents, the way back You know, to get off the defensive anti-narrative, which I've never been a fan of, back to supporting positive, forward-thinking solutions on how we do this. And the first step back is food is medicine. We have Mm -hmm. to get these techno foods, industrialized food-like products out of our diets, give children real organic foods and herbs. Please do not negate the herb closet that you can grow on your windowsill in any apartment. Easy to grow herbs. And that's what we have to get back to. And there's this movement that going back to the food movement, um, the slow food movement. And this is sort of what we're promoting, what I've been working on uh, farm to table, farm to clinic, farm to hospital, farm to family, that this is where our medicine chest is. So I don't want to give any supplement if a family's not eating organic, nutrient dense, whole food, plant enriched
0: diet. Period. Well, and, and just modify that by uh, seed seed oil free <laughs> diet, obviously. Died.
1: And seed oil free, you know,
0: yeah.
1: and you know, it, it's soaking raw raw nuts are just full of nutrients. Assuming kids can tolerate them, and I don't see a kid these days that doesn't have evidence of chronic gut inflammation, leaky gut, and dysbiosis, imbalanced microbiome. Almost all the kids have it now; they're yeah. all regulated. Yeah. So we have to fix that and no, get
0: back on track. It would be interesting to get your take on this because it seems like they they are destroying future generations. And I think they've been a very I I suspect it's been planned. This isn't an accident. This isn't an artifact of greedy behavior. This is intentional. So that's my belief. And I'm wondering what your view is, because you're in the trenches, you're seeing this, and you've seen over the last four decades this gradual decline in every generation. It goes down and down further down. And this and this two, you know, they they jabbed at least 100 million people, is my guess. Maybe more. It's hard to say because who's, no one's given accurate statistics, and how could you when you know you got drive-through uh, jab centers that they're not even take, keeping good records. So, what what's your impression? This is, is what what is happening to the hell? I mean, I mean, I mean, if you just look as a biomarker, the rate of autism. You know, when you and I first started practicing, it was one in 10,000, one in 10,000. Now it's like one in 30. So, and that's and it's, that's just a mark for uh, the, the a massive decline we've seen in the health of all these generations since you and I've been practicing. What, what's your take?
1: Well, you know, I, I clearly saw the links between the change in our food and neurocognitive health in children. That was clear right away. And we've been screaming about it. Stephanie, us, we've all been screaming about it. And yet, there was a landmark paper came out two years ago uh 2019 that showed how glyphosate caused autism by mm-hmm. epoxide hydrolase this paper came out and i said okay here it is folks we know how these you know herbicides these ubiquitous herbicides cause autism we just got to get rid of it and the, and the autism pandemic will be over and not a peep so i unfortunately believe also that this is um, a pandemic and that we um, the children are just pawns to be sacrificed as well. They don't have much value in our American society. I felt that for a long time now that children are not valued. And I do believe that, unfortunately. And that is why I wrote last year, the environmental uh, children's environmental health bill of rights. I feel that our children are under assault and whether you want to postulate um, Wef uh, greed uh, technocracy takeover whatever positions you want to you know postulate um, I could probably wrap around most of them is um, I believe that children are assaulted via food organic lack thereof organics air in unclean water subjugated to medical therapies electronic waste um, and this is what And this has to be a global organization to protect our children. Our kids are sick. We can document it. Chronic disease is rampant. You know, when I wrote the book, it was one in uh, about 54% of kids. I think it's like 63% of children now have a chronic disease. If that doesn't shock people, then nothing will. And then I have to concur with you, Dr. McCullough, that we are not giving a rat's tushy about the welfare of our children.
0: Yeah, which is sad because it's so obvious. I mean, that's the future of the world is the kids, and that's why we. we this is such a devastating course that we've taken. Uh, I mean, that we collectively, obviously not you and I, but you know, the world seems to have adopted. So, uh, what is we're getting close to the end. So, what, what are your recommendations to counter this course of events? And how can we make a difference?
1: Thank you. I'm so Dr. Doom and Gloom on this interview, but clearly I am a positive kind of a gal, solutions-based, even though I'm not sure that's what it sounded like. But... (laughs) Um, How we move forward. Recognition of the problem is step one. Step two is parents have to remove the patriarchy, matriarchy systems that have taken over their families and regain their own control of their own families. Um, And so promoting that. And that begins with what we discussed. Food is medicine, home cooking, getting back to those basics, teaching people how to grow food, seed acquisition, all that. Absolutely. Teaching people how to use, dare I say, homeopathy at home homeopathy is a great tool it's affordable it's effective kids like it they're sugar pills let's get real folks so we give people toolboxes on how to care for their own health and get them out of this um, uh, gosh infantilized system where people feel they have to run to the physician for every bruise cut and boo-boo you know quick call the pediatrician not so we have parents have lost that ability and we have to regain it we had it We get it back. You think about when we were kids, how often did you go to the doctor? Like once? (laughs) I think I went once, you know, as a child. I mean, our parents had, you know, some knowledge. So we do that. Um, And also that um, I am also the belief now, and I say this very gingerly, is to create paradigm systems and parallel structures. And I didn't invent that. That was from Dr. Desmond. And so we keep up our persistence in what we're doing. People like you, Dr. McCullough, super courageous, speaking the truth. You're so well-read. I read all your stuff. Um, that we keep speaking our truth in a way that is science-based. Everything I've said today, when it's science-based, I say it. And when it's anecdote and from my patient experience, I'll say that. So we when I talk about the lumbar kinase, so much of that is anecdotal from, from my clinical experience. We keep bringing our truth forward and we, we're consistent we network in large groups, we stay unified, and we head to the truth. Because I, I do believe, here's my idealistic pediatrician self, that truth prevails. And so I am heading to the light. My Hopefully my pineal is not fluorosed, yeah. And I'm <laughs> going- Calcified. Like, it's not calcified. <laughs> I'm heading to the truth as always, that's my goal. I fall off a few times, but that's where I'm going. And, and, and invite the community come along. And that we can be better and we can create better. So I hope we can create healthier and better. That's what I'm working on and that's what I truly believe from my heart. That's where we go.
0: Sounds great. So if people want to find more about what you do or join what you're advocating, what's what's what do they do?
1: They can go to uh, drmichelleperro.com. That's my website. Please check out gmoscience.org. That's my nonprofit that we co-founded uh, in 2014. I'm still on the GMO Science gene editing bandwagon. I'll be on that till I become compost. Stay tuned for a launch coming up in the next month or two of Regeneration Health International.bio. That will be coming up shortly to stay involved there. And in 2023, Making Our Children Well should be published, which will be um, my next book.
0: Oh, great. You're a rare bird. You indeed truly are to have a pediatrician who's so passionate about this is, is an amazing, massive anomaly. So thank you for everything you've been doing, for, for staying in there and fighting the fight and giving people the truth about how to take control of their health.
1: Thank you, Dr. McColo. Appreciate it and uh, love what you do.